Our text tonight is from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. I will read, and then I'll pray. Um, if you would, oh, keep your Bibles open, because we're gonna be, I'm going to be pointing at a few different passages uh, or a few different um, uh, verses from this. And I want you to see it with your, with your own eyes, not just on the screen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, I have the right to do anything. Notice those are in quotes meaning this is something that Corinth said. This is what was going around the church in Corinth. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, again in quotes, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, quote, stomach for the food, and the uh, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both, end quote. The body, however, Paul says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin is a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is God's word. Um, Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I want to pray that we would, um, that you would speak to the hearts of people. Like you would, you would speak right into places where Uh, some of the most difficult conversations lie, especially in our city, especially being Christians in our city. And it's this issue in and around sexuality and what is sex for and what are our bodies for and all of this. And I pray that you and your word would speak right into this place, that you would reset if need be, that you would bring mercy if need be. And I, I just submit all of my thoughts and my capacities to you, God. Give me your mind and your heart, Lord. I submit to you, and I pray that you would anoint me. We pray this in the strong, mighty, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Today's sermon, um, I hope, will be an apology. There are two definitions of an apology. The first sense is our modern colloquial sense, and that is to say sorry and ask for forgiveness. The second sense is the philosophical sense in in that an apology is a defense as in apologetics. And I want to apologize in both senses tonight. First, I want to say sorry. I want to say sorry for the way that the church has taught on the body and on sexuality that has been harmful and hurtful to so many people, both gay and straight. I think of being a youth pastor in the late 90s and the purity culture that swept through much of the church with the promise ring purity pledge, if you remember that growing up in church, and the I kissed dating goodbye stuff. Now, both of those sort of things had good intentions, but what it did was it steeped a whole generation into so much legalism that it resulted in a lot of fear and shame around sex. For example, if you grew up in and around that time, if you're basically a millennial who grew up in the church, If you were growing up and you were a guy, a man growing up in the church at that time, you were so afraid of getting a disease or getting a girl pregnant because that culture tried to place fear into men, fear. And so around sex, there's a lot of fear. If you were a woman, if you were a gal, you were afraid of shame. Having sex in youth group was shameful. Giving your body to some guy was was made to be a shameful act. I remember telling my youth group, to tell all their friends who were having sex that you, I said, say this to them, say, I can be like you and one night you can never be like me, pure. I said that. And I use that, um, I use, we use purity culture as like a weapon and to try to keep kids pure, um, we try to make sex shameful and we try to make purity the highest thing in the world. Not following Jesus, but being pure. 
And to those who were gay in youth groups then, we didn't even really know what to do with people that were gay. We had no meaningful way of discipling, at least from what I heard of anyway. So I want to apologize for the way the church has done this historically. I think of the LGBTQI movement and what it's done and how it's done a lot of good in making us in the church re-examine how we treat and disciple those who are gay. Some churches have gotten this right, to be sure, but I know many historically have not. But tonight, I also want to give an apologetic for sex and the human body. Tonight, I want to put forth for you to think about, engage with, and even argue with me. I would really invite that, just not through email, because that's lame. Face-to-face, that would be amazing. I want to give tonight a defense of a historic Christian vision of human sexuality. Tonight, I want to give you the historic Christian vision of human sexuality as an apologetic, as a defense of the historic Christian vision of human sexuality. Now, I know I live as a pastor in San Francisco, and there are so many different beliefs that you bring into a room when we start to talk about sex and sexuality. And the reason why I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is because not only is Corinth a lot like San Francisco, ancient Corinth was very much like San Francisco today, in that it was progressive, entrepreneurial, and the bayside city of its day, but because what Paul, as a pastor and a minister of Jesus, was hearing from the congregation in Corinth was a lot of cultural collective understanding that was being passed on to him as why what he was teaching them about sex and sexuality was wrong. And so he writes in this response, what we read tonight, and in his writing, he gives us a theology of our bodies and of sex. So let's look at a little bit of what Paul says. Corinth, because the church was steeped in a culture uh, that, like all cultures, needed God's people to be reoriented by God, there are certain things that Corinth believed about life and the self. And I should stop here. And every single person who comes to reality, every single person who has walked through the doors of reality in our 10 years comes in with a worldview, comes in with a way of thinking shaped mainly through culture, And every single one of us, myself included, and what I try to do every week is be reoriented by God through His Scriptures. So this is exactly what Paul was trying to do with Corinth, reorient them to what God said. Now the stories that that culture in Corinth, ancient Corinth, told themselves seeped into their bones and thus seeped into their church and into their community groups and into their leadership. And so this is what This is the story that Corinth was told and lived out of in that culture. And and we, we know this through a few quotes that Paul quotes from them. First, they believed sex was about rights and freedom. This is what they believed in Corinth, okay? They said, look at verse 12. These are in quotes. So have your Bible open. Look at these are in quotes. I have the right to do anything in verse 12. So sex fell in the category of rights and freedom to the people in Corinth. Notice how this is in quotes in your Bible. This was an actual maxim that was going around in the church. The right to do anything for them was apparently going to prostitutes and saying that such conduct was harmless. Now, to us, this may seem surprising that members of the church were seeing prostitutes and then trying to mount a defense that it's okay to see prostitutes. But we must remember that the social world of the ancient Uh, Corinthians differed greatly from ours. Prostitution was not only legal in Corinth, it was widely accepted as a social convention. The sexual latitude allowed uh, to men by Greek public opinion was virtually unrestricted. Sexual relations of males with both boys and harlots were generally tolerated. Therefore, Richard Hayes, a commentator, um, writes this about what was going on in First Corinthians or in Corinth. The Corinthian men who went to prostitutes were not asserting some new unheard of freedom. They were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in a pleasurable activity that was entirely normal within their own culture. Now, I won't rule out that people in our congregation and in this room right now have not slept with a prostitute or sold their own bodies for money. In our cultural moment right now, that might even bring, actually, I think that 
brings a lot of shame, not simply from the Christian community, but from the media and from culture. I don't think I have to make a strong argument that prostitution is not God's vision for how we do, where to use our bodies or other people's bodies. I can say that there is hope and forgiveness in Christ for sure for those who believe and so use their bodies in this way and their, Christ comes in and redeems that for sure. But I don't think that the argument I need to make today as a pastor is prostitution is wrong. I think the argument I need to make is what are our bodies for and can I use my body according to my rights and my freedom? Meaning, because I have the right and others have the right to do what they want with their body as long as there's consent, should that be okay for the Christian? Now hold on to that question and let's keep going with Paul's line of thinking. Second thing that Corinth believed about sex, they believed that sex was about appetite. They say, quote, food for the stomach and stomach for food in verse 13. Again, another maxim that was going around the church. The ancient world regularly linked sexual appetite for appetite for food. Their logic went like this. The stomach was the organ for nourishment. So food was there to meet that need. Food is meant for the stomach and vice versa. So also sexual activity is meant for the body and the body for sexual activity because those are its urges. The stomach is useless unless we eat and the body they thought is useless unless we have sexual fulfillment. This is more or less what we learned about sex in school and in our culture, I think it still believes this today. Sex is just one of the very important human appetites that needs filling is our cultural story. Now, I think most of us get this. Most of our city lives this way in and around sexuality. But here's why they believed that they could fulfill their bodily appetite of sex as Christians. This is why Corinth believed this. And where we get the crux of the matter, which is number three, they believe the body didn't really matter. Quote, verse 13, God will destroy them both. This is what they said. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God's going to destroy all of that. They believe that our bodies were just husks that will one day be shed when we get to heaven. Our bodies don't really matter. The spirit counts for everything. The body counts for nothing. Our bodies don't matter. Now, before I try and explain what Paul means, that our bodies are meant for something, specifically the Lord, I think it would be good to share with you as a way of naming the water that we swim in, our cultural story today. What is the story that we live into today? What's the story that seeps into our bones here at in the church in San Francisco, Reality San Francisco, to the place where it reshapes what we think about God and humanity and how we live in this world? And so I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you the secular progressive story that permeates everything, everywhere you work, everywhere you read. This is the story we all swim in. And it goes something like this. We humans are animals. Essentially, we are primates with incredible imaginations <clears throat> that had evolutionary time and chance on our side. And human nature, human nature is us humans, our nature, there's really no meaning or purpose to our human body. There's no really meaning or purpose in our human nature when it comes to our bodies, other than evolutionary function, the propagation of the species, which means the body is a morally neutral machine with which we can impose our own will. Male and female, well, that's just plumbing. Our sex is just plumbing. It's just the way that we were plumbed when we came out of our mother's womb. Gender is a social construct, imaginary, probably developed by the patriarchy to oppress women. Sex, well, sex is for pleasure. And if that's what gives you pleasure, it's just a biological release and you should be able to do that. And if you want to have, ba and, and, and if you want to have babies, but only when you're ready. And if you're ready, however you want to have babies, go ahead and do that. Love. Well, in this story, love is a feeling you get from being with someone that makes you happy or that you desire in a, in a particularly, particularly a sexually desire, who you sexually desire, who you want. Marriage, well, marriage again, marriage is a social construct created for things like tribal alliance and commerce and patriarchy, oppression of women and children, 
and monogamy isn't natural. It's a not a natural thing for humans to be monogamous. The purpose of marriage now, well, now that the earth is overpopulated and we know better than religion and tradition, marriage is just for happiness. That's what marriage is. If you're into it, great. Marry whomever you love as defined earlier as the, the happy feeling you get when you desire someone. That could be a different sex. That could be the same sex. That could be unisex. That could be gender neutral. That could be gender fluid. Whatever, it's okay. It's cool. If you're, in, if you're not into marriage, that's okay too. No problem. There are plenty of options for sexuality. Divorce. Well, divorce is the enlightened decision for two people who are no longer compatible because, again, the point is happiness. So if you're not happy in marriage, meaning you don't feel good about the other person anymore, then you need to move on and start over because you have to be true to yourself. And the Bible. Well, what about the Bible? What does the story say about the Bible? Well, the Bible and authority is, the Bible is a collection of human writings with some great ideas in it. But it's full of sexism and racism and patriarchal oppression and anti-erotic ideas about sex. And any and all forms of its external authority are oppressive if they are imposed on you by someone else. And everything that is imposed on you by yourself inside is repressive and will keep you from happiness. Now, what is the overall goal and the meaning of life under this story? Well, technically, there is no meaning of life. Life is a glorious or not so glorious, depending on how much money you have or where you were born, accident. There is no creator, which means there is no creation, only nature, which means there's no design, only tooth and claw. So feel free to come up with your own meaning for your own life. Ideally, something that has to do with human progress, since that ties in with evolutionary theory. But we don't need God to progress as a species. In fact, God and the people who believe in him are holding us back from true enlightenment. And if you can't come up with a cause to give your life to, that's okay too. Just be happy. If not, smoke legal weed. It's legal now. Drink artisan cocktails. Drink your microbrew. Make some money. Have some sex. Enjoy your travels. Post them on Instagram. Be kind to one another because this is the only planet we have until we figure something else out. And we're working on that. That... That story is the story you hear all week long. It's a story that is woven into your startups. It's your financial companies. It's a story you get from Cal or Stanford, the story you get from Netflix, the story you get from the New York Times, your posts on Instagram feed, movies you watch, even the conversations you have in community groups at this church, this story is being told. And it's easy to assume that this story is reality. And if it feels almost impossible to resist it, because, because it almost feels it is, in parts or in whole. But the thing is, this is a story. It's a story. It's a certain reading of the data points of science and history and religion and the human experience. And I would say that this story, for the most part, is not working. There was a recent segment on NPR uh, on a show on NPR called Hidden Brain. And we, uh, you may know NPR, I mean, it's not necessarily conservative radio, it's not necessarily conservative talk radio, right? So this segment was on hookup culture on college campuses. Now, I know it's easy to beat up on hookup culture on college campuses. And you may be thinking, listen, I'm not in college anymore, and when I was, I wasn't really hooking up, so this has nothing to do with me. Either way, the reason why this is fascinating was because the segment was examining how sex is changing. And the canary in the coal mine, if you know what that phrase means, is the college campus. Now what's changing is that sex is becoming more and more meaningless. And it's supposed to be meaningless. People are expected to have meaningless sex. Sex that doesn't have any romantic connection. They, e they even said in the segment that the worst thing to be called on a college campus was not a slut, but desperate. If you, are de if you sleep, hook up with someone and you call them and you keep calling them, you're desperate. And that is the worst thing to be called on a college campus. Now, you're desperate if you show any feelings after having sex. Now, this is true for both when, men and women. Both men and women feel this. But they feel this in different ways to be sure. The article or the segment says that this paradigm favors white males. Now, I have so many thoughts 
on how race plays into sexual progression, but that's not for today. You can come talk to me afterwards. I have so many thoughts, but that's not for today. Now, the host of the show, the entire 30-minute segment, you can tell was trying not to moralize anything. It's NPR. They're not really trying to be, they're not trying to moralize things. They were trying to remain journalistic, fair, and fairly neutral. And he's stating the facts and he's interviewing college students and he's interviewing this this woman whose name is Lisa Wade who wrote a book, American Hookup. And she's, he's using her book and her, and her four years of research and interviewing the students that she interviewed to make up this segment. So he gets to the end of the segment and he says, um, he says, uh, Lisa, I like to, I like to quote your book and ask you something. She's, he says, you write in your book, it's on the screen, hookup culture demands carelessness, rewards callousness, and punishes kindness. Both men and women are free to have sex, but neither is entirely free to love. Then he pauses and he says, that sounds depressing. He can't hold it in anymore. He cannot hold in being neutral. He can't just hold this in and go, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to moralize anything. I'm just going to say the facts. He, just, he says, that sounds depressing. And, and the writer uh, laughs. She laughs and says, it is, it is depressing. And I'm in my car. I'm screaming. I'm literally <laughs> screaming in my car. Like screaming, out loud, screaming. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I'm just yelling. Like I'm yelling at, I don't know what I'm yelling at. The world, the universe, I don't know. This is so depressing. This is so depressing. Our bodies mean something. Sex means something. They have a telos, a meaning, and a purpose, and one given to it by God. And this telos comes from God and not from our cultural story. God's story about our bodies and about sex goes something like this. We were created in the image of God. I'll quote Jesus to keep it simple. Haven't you read, Jesus said or replied, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, what reason? The fact that he made them male and female. Man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus says, our bodies were made by the creator God in the beginning, male and female. Sex was created in the beginning to be about the one flesh union of husband and wife. Both of these have a purpose and both of these tell a story. Therefore, our bodies and our sex are teleological and theological. Write that down. They're tele- our bodies and our sex teleological and theological, meaning teleological, our bodies and our sex have meaning and purpose and a design given to it by God. That tell a story with our body to the the meaning of it, to the end of it, to the goal of it. And And our bodies are theological. Our bodies and sex tell a story of who God is and what God is like. Now, for most of you, you have heard what the scriptures say about sex and our bodies. But you have not heard the why. You've heard what? You have heard that God made us male and female, that sex is the one flesh union of husband and wife for life and marriage. You've heard the what, but no one, maybe no one has told you the why. Why is that true? The why are the teleological and theological aspects of our bodies, and I want to explain that right now. But before I do, I want to share two things. Number one, I'm going to scandalize some people in here. I just will. I know I will. I'm going to make people so angry, they're going to want to get up and walk out. And that might happen over the last 10 weeks with the race. Many, many people have walked out. So I know if that's how you're going to vote with your feet and just walk out, I totally get that. I won't point you out like I did before. I won't do it again. Okay, I promise. <laughs> this is going to scandalize you. And here's why. Uh, Patrick Deneen, who wrote a book called Why Liberalism Has Failed, a book um, who, a book that's recommended by Obama, by the way, um, just, just to gain some cred in the room for a second. <laughs> uh, he says this, he says that um, we're, America is just a liberal country. Now, you, there's a conservatism part of liberalism and a progressivism part of, part of liberalism. Conservative and liberal, but they're both basically the same thing. They're just different ways. For example, he says, 
for the conservative camp, which we're not, we're, we're way more on the progressive side of the country, but in conservative camps, um, and the environment is supposed to be subject to our will. We are to overcome our environment. So that means whatever we need to do to make human progress, we can use our environment for that. That means killing fish or, or drilling or fracking or destroying the environment. It's okay because it's human progress. And the environment is to bend to our will. Now, if I said that, if I taught that here, you would be scandalized. Most of you would be scandalized. You'd be like, the environment? No, 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 no. We're supposed to care for the environment. We're supposed to love the environment. We don't just impose our will on the environment. That's wrong. That's why we're having all these storms and there's global warming. And I would do all that and you would, you would get mad at me. Okay. But we're, I'm not, we're, not, we're not in that place right now. I'm not going to do that. I think the Bible has a lot to say about environmentalism. However, he says, you know what progressive liberalism looks like? That says we cannot impose our will on the environment. That's wrong. But we can impose our will on our own bodies. We can do whatever we want with our bodies. We can change them genetically. We could think about the fact that we're not who we want to be. We don't care. Our bodies are a shell, and we could impose our will on our bodies. Now, the reason why I will scandalize a lot of you is because we live in a progressive part of the nation. And I'm going to tell you that that's wrong. You cannot do what you want to your body, and you're going to feel scandalized. Just as if I was in Texas and I said, you can't do what you want to the environment, most of the church would probably hate me. But we're not there. I'm not doing that teaching. I'm doing this teaching. I'm saying, well, if I was to tell them, you can't do that. But I'm saying you can't do what you want with your body. Okay, the second thing I'm going to say is this, by the way of introduction before I get into it. I want to share a quote that I shared with you last year during our Everyday Mystic series. I love this quote. I've been thinking about this quote often, especially around this teaching. It says this. Carl Rayner says, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all. The future the Christian of the future will be a mystic. What I'm about to share is deeply mystical, so put your mystical hats on and listen carefully. First, you are your body. You don't have a body. You are a body. Now, you may be thinking, didn't C.S. Lewis say something about how we don't have a soul, we are a soul, you have a body? The thing is, C.S. Lewis never said that. Look it up. He never said that. It's a wrong quote attributed to him. He didn't say that. The fact is, you are a soul and you are a body. And those two things are connected. They are, if they are ever unconnected, we call that death. <laughs> They're connected, soul and body. And I know that you want to upload your consciousness to the cloud, but Christian teaching and common knowledge and science says that the separation of your soul and your body equals death. Now, there's coming a day when Jesus will unite dead bodies with souls and what's called the resurrection of the dead. Your dead body will reunite with your soul and you will have a renewed body. This body and the new heavens and new earth, I'll look like me, but just renewed so, I don't have time to do that. You look up, I've taught on this before about heaven. Okay, so you are your body. Your body matters and your body is eternal. Christ will raise it up just like Christ's body was raised up. Now, that's why if someone was to break your arm in rage, it's not property damage, it's personal assault. Your body is you. Now, our bodies are designed by God to make visible what is invisible. God made our bodies to make visible what is invisible, to make visible the spiritual and the divine nature of God. Our bodies make visible that. This idea is captured in what is called the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And it comes from Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Again, I've taught on this before in Genesis series. The hour in this is so fascinating. Let us make mankind in our image. And God speaking singular, it's so fascinating. But I don't have time to get into that. But God said, let's make mankind in our image. So God created mankind in his own image. And the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is really important. When God made us, he made us to mirror him, to image him, to make, to make visible what was invisible. Now, why that last bit is important to be made in the image of God, male and female, is this. Genesis 2, the very next chapter in verse 24. 
It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5 quotes this exact verse and then says, this is a profound mystery. And you think he's talking about marriage. It's like, marriage? The, the, the husband and wife coming together and having sex and becoming one flesh, that's, that's, uh, that's profound? No, no, that's not what Paul's talking Again, Paul's a mystic. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, keep that up on the screen for a second. I want you to see this in your mind. Write these two verses down. Take a picture of these two verses. And I want you just to meditate on these for a second. These two verses are the most significant, crucial, and meaningful verses if you want to know who we really are and why we really are as male and female and how who we are as male and female tell the story of who God is. Right here. For a second, let me back up. God exists forever in an external and an eternal exchange of love. Read, if you don't believe me, read Jesus' prayer in John 17. God is an eternal exchange of love, existing in himself in a love relationship. He's an infinite, he's an infinite communion of persons experiencing eternal love relationship. God, Trinity, three in one. And he created us for one reason, to share that eternal love relationship. Not, he didn't create us to receive love because he already has gotten love by the, the, the persons of the Trinity. He created humanity to share his love. This is what makes the gospel good news. At the center of ultimate reality, there is a real love that corresponds to the deep longing of our hearts. And that love is God's free gift to us through Christ. Now, that's God, existing in three persons, always experiencing in communion and love with, with each other. Now, God wants to love us. He wants us to experience that love and indeed created the world in such a way as to share and experience that love with us. But something happened. It's called Genesis 3, the fall. The love story takes a turn. And from Genesis 3 on, God is after to reclaim us, to redeem us, or, the Bible uses this language, to marry us. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God wants to marry us. Marriage is central to the Bible. The Bible opens with a marriage, Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends with the marriage in Revelation of the marriage of Christ and the church. And all in the middle, God is trying to marry us. Example, Isaiah 62, 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so your maker will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Ezekiel 16, 7 and 8. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breast had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by and when I looked and I, at you and I saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. This is erotic language. This is covenantal marital language, and it's all over the Old Testament. Now, this is where it gets really important, so listen. Why is God always the husband and humanity is always the bride? Why is God always male in these metaphors and humanity is female? Does gender matter? Does sex, male, female, matter? Some might say this is very patriarchal language, and that's why God is male and the bridegroom. It's just patriarchy. That's, what it, that's all it is. The Bible is full of patriarchy. But what if it isn't? What if there's something deeper and more mystical going on? Now, keep what I'm about to say purely in the realm of biology so you don't screw yourself up. The reason why humanity is the bride in the old, both the Old Testament and the New Testament is because humanity is first receptive to the love of God 
we first receive the love of God. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's love. God loved us. Now, on the screen, this is important. The woman's body primarily tells the story of receiving divine love, while the man's body primarily tells the story of offering that love, of pouring it out. It's the husband who gives the seed or inseminates. It's the bride who receives the seed within and conceives new life. Mary, the mother of Jesus, illuminates the theology of a woman's body. In her, a woman's body has literally become the dwelling place of the Most High. Heaven on earth in her womb. Now, the essential meaning of sexual difference, male and female, matter. And a failure to recognize that will mess with both the telos and the theology of our bodies and what our bodies are ultimately supposed to point towards. There is a reason why we were created male and female. Think of it this way. A man's body doesn't make sense by itself, nor does a woman's body. But seen in light of each other, sexual difference reveals God's unmistakable plan that man and women are meant to be a gift to one another. Let's be more specific. A man's body is incomplete in all of its systems but one. A woman's body is incomplete in all its systems but one. And those respective systems, the reproductive systems, only function in union with each other. Let's be more specific. If Adam and Eve stood by each other, and then when they saw each other naked and unashamed, they would have seen that they were the same and they had all the same parts. They both had a head, they both have hands, they both have arms, legs, butt cheeks, the whole thing, right? Except for two. Except for two. And those two parts fit together. Two weeks ago, I told you that sex meant to be torn apart. That's what sex means, it's to be torn. And we have this desire to be put back together. We feel that. Existentially, we feel that. But our bodies tell a story that is actually true. Our bodies are torn apart, male and female, and they fit back together. They go back together. This is, this is the, the teleological reason of our physical bodies that's God made us male and female. This is the theological reasons too. Because now, there's all kinds of ways this is broken, by the way. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm painting the Genesis picture. I know there's a million questions. There's all kinds of ways this gets broken after the fall, but hang on to that for a second. This story that our bodies tell is the theological story God has built into our bodies, male and female. The fact that God wants union with us. The fact that in our bodies, we, our bodies tell a story of something that was apart and needs to be put back together. In our bodies, we carry that. Whether or not we ever have sex, our bodies are sexed that way. And Christian teaching says that that points towards a union that God wants with us. That he initiates loves towards us. That he, um, in a sense, comes into our life. Literally into our lives. And that he wants us to produce fruit. This is all very tied together and very, very important to way, the way God made the world. Now, of course, there are all kinds of ways that sin has broken this all apart. And I don't mean sin like you did wrong. I mean, it, it, it carries in our own bodies. We do this in the way that we're just born into the world. There's, there's ways that we're born um, intersexed. There's ways that we're born with different inclinations and different appetites. There's ways that we're born... Uh, differently. There's ways that we're born the same but dis disordered. There's all kinds of ways. Not anyone, as Sam Overy taught last Sunday, not any one of us is like a, a sexually unbroken person. We're all broken. But this is important. I want to say this kindly and pastorally, but I want to say it with truth. Jesus does not accept the normalization of our fallen humanity. He, he just doesn't do it. His redemption, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness is all about getting us back to the way that we are created. Recreation, redemption. Whole, 
connected in union with him. This is why in the context of Matthew 19, when Jesus teaches on divorce, he said, well, yeah, Moses gave you, uh, allowed you to have div- be, get divorced because of your hearts. They were hardened, but the creator didn't make it like that in the beginning. That's not how God made it. Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, we live in a broken world. You know what? Let's just redo that. He said the only way that you could get a divorce is for sexual unfaithfulness because sexual sin is a, a kind of a different kind of sin that destroys the marriage covenant. Amen. So, another thing I'll say, the teachings of Jesus are hard. They just are. There's no way as a pastor that I can, it's, they're hard for everyone. They've been challenging my entire life. They will challenge you in all kinds of ways. They might even challenge you to a place where, I'm just going to be really honest, you might, you might walk away from Jesus. You're like, this is the teaching of Jesus, and I'm trying to do it as kind and as intelligent as I can. I don't know. And there's teachings that Jesus gave where people literally walked away. That's just part and parcel. And I don't want that to make that because of me or because of this church. If you have beef with Jesus' teachings, I will try to pastor you and teach you, but this is the way of Jesus. Now to review, God has created your body as you, and your body matters to who you are. God has created us male and female to show what he is like, and sex between male and female in a committed marriage is an icon that points to the union that we have with God now through Jesus and will ultimately have with him in heaven when heaven and earth unite. And by the way, in Genesis language, um, heaven is gendered as a, as a male and earth is a female. This is the story that we are told that our bodies have, like this is the purpose that our bodies carry. Now, there are many people in our church and there are many churches that kind of mess with this theology. And like, you know, we can mess with this theology. It's, it's, it's not going to mess with who Jesus is. It's not going to mess with salvation. You're still saved by grace. And I'm like, absolutely, yes. You're saved by grace, not because of what you believe about this. But I will say this. You mess with this theology. You mess with a lot other, a lot, you, you mess with many more theologies. Doctrine is decided by God and it's an ecosystem. And you mess with one part, you mess with a lot of other parts. You mess with this, you mess with what it means to be male and female. You mess with Jesus and the church. You mess with like the union. You mess with how the Bible opens and how the Bible closes. You mess with all of that. And that's, that's, that's heavy. The secular story we are told when we honestly boil it down is that our body doesn't matter. What matters is how we feel in our bodies. Nancy Piercy, who I would recommend her book, Love Thy Body. It's an incredible book. Um, she's an apologist and she's a social commentator and she's, it's just a really well-written book. She says this in her book. The body is not seen as having any purpose or telos. This is under the secular story, the progressive story, the, not progressive, but, the, um, but the, the postmodern story. It is merely a collection of physical systems, muscles, bones, and organs and cells, providing no clue to who we are or how we should live. Our physical traits give us no signposts for the right way to deploy our sexuality. And if the meaning of our sexuality is not something we derive from the body, then it becomes something we impose on the body. It's a social construction. Now, you may be thinking, Dave, you can keep your mystic thoughts. Just keep them. That's cool. You're a mystic. Whoa, have fun. Whatever. Um, let me do what I want with my body. And don't, don't do this in the church, because I really like this church. Don't mess it up. <laughs> but like I said, this project isn't working. This secular project is not working. Melinda Selmy's in her book, Sexual Authenticity, which is another book I commend to you. As someone, she was a... Um, uh, a bisexual woman who um, actually turned into be lesbian because she didn't like men's bodies. And someone, after a lot, didn't grow up in the church at all, didn't grow up in and around church, um, was an atheist. But someone gave her a book by Thomas Merton, and she came to know Jesus through this book. Um, and then she writes on very intelligently about our bodies. And she says this in her book, not just intelligently, but just like punch you in the face. It's just, <laughs> she says, um, Underneath the pop and fizzle of sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair, not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. 
It seems counterintuitive, surely. The sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below the neck. Yet beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in the literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything you would like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alley to whip it, or you can give it to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either a, you must either accept a that your body is not you; it is just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, the disembodied ghost, controls, or b that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of the senseless and nihilistic universe. Honestly, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone against the host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both the mind with the free will and the body, all of which has dignity and meaning. At the heart of the modern philosophical project is the attempt to understand human existence without reference to God. Wow. You were created by God, and your body is in reference to him. That's what, that's what the scriptures teach. Made male and female in order to point to the ultimate union that God desires to have with us. Back to the slide. For this reason, God created man and woman to be in marriage and have sex. And this is a profound mystery. What, marriage and sex? No, no, no. Christ and the church. What that points toward is Christ and the church. The unification of these two different things. The one of them penetrating the realm of another, coming inside to a point where there's fruitfulness. The union of our bodies carry within them the, the greater, more profound union, the eternal union of us and God. That's what this points toward. Sex is an icon. It points beyond itself like icons do. They point beyond themselves to heaven. But we don't see sex as an icon anymore. We've made sex an idol We've made it a God to worship, and it has marred and destroyed the thing it was supposed to point toward, to where nobody knows what sex is for anymore, and nobody knows what marriage is for anymore. No matter what you believe on this, I mean, it's, what is marriage for? What is sex for? The Christian teaching is that it points to something beyond itself, whether you're having sex or not, singled or married. It's a mystery that points beyond itself. So the invitation today it's to smash the idol and to begin to look at the real thing. The real thing is our union with God. That's the reality. That's what it's really pointing towards. And it's possible. I think of the woman at the well. Jesus asked, how many, how, go get your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right. You have five husbands and the man you're sleeping with now is not your husband. That's six guys. Six is the number of incompletion in the Bible. Who's the seventh guy? Who's the one that really completes her? Seven's the number of completion, if you didn't know that. Who's the one? Jesus. He's right there. He's like, this what, what you've been after. What you've been after in sex, what you've been after in, in men using you, or you using men, and how it all works together. Who's the seventh guy? Who's the guy who completes? The woman caught in adultery. She's standing there at the end of the story, and no one's condemning her. No one has stoned her with rocks. And she realizes that no one's going to stone her, and not even Jesus. And Jesus says, no one's here to condemn you, and I don't condemn you. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive. He came to save. He came to release. That's what he's come to do. If you're hearing a voice of condemnation this morning, it's not from Jesus. It's really important that we get right the way God made the world. But Jesus comes to free us. And so Jesus says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. You think the woman was like, wait, don't tell me what to do with my body. 
This is mercy. At that point, I really believe that Jesus became her Lord. Okay. That, that way of life, that structure, that paradigm I lived under, that worldview, it's gone. I've met the mercy of Christ, and now going to sin no more becomes a promise. I can live a life now obedient to you, in life with you, in line the way you see the world, and that's liberating. And this is what we need. We need true liberation, not liberation from our minds or our psyches or our bodies. We need liberation from the broken down ways that we've tried to find fulfillment. And we need to find them again in union with God. And that's possible through a life with Jesus because of what he's done for us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, I want to pray now for your Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Church, I want to invite you, if you, um, if you would, if you would posture yourself as a way, as an act with your body. Your body matters. Uh, in a way, position yourself with your body, like by opening your hands up and saying, Lord, here I am. And I want to receive from you, God. in ways that I need to be reoriented, in ways that I need to be, uh, things that need to be kind of broken and reset, I'm open. Come Holy Spirit. I, I really believe, Lord, that uh, a moment in your presence answers all kinds of questions. And I have questions about that. I mean, there's so many questions that float around, float around, but I pray that we'd bring our whole selves to you, our bodies, our souls, our minds, our spirits to you, and ask you to redeem. May your mercy come now. Holy Spirit, bring your mercy. Pour the love of the Father out in our hearts, God. In the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.